You know, I, I've lived in Hawaii for many, many years, you know, uh, uh, and I, I'm very aware of that culture and what's going on there. But I needed something different in my life. I needed more museums. I needed to hear 12 languages before I pick up my coffee. You know, I, I, you know it, this is a great city. Of course, I, I, I've been to New York many, many times in, in, in the last 50 years. But I couldn't wait to get out of here, you know, for, uh, if I'd been here for three or four days. But when you live here and you realize what an incredible city of information it really is, it's a different place. And I'm very pleased that I, I should have I moved to New York many years ago. I think every New Yorker has a complicated relationship with New York. I, yeah. I suspect that's probably the case with most places, but but even more so here. You know, there's yeah. the there's the cliche if if you could make it here, you can make it everywhere. And I've always taken that to mean that in a lot of respects, it's a much more difficult place to live than a lot of other places you could choose. Yes, indeed. But it is a great city. I'm just finishing this book up now um, by Van Donken. It's about it's called the Island at the Middle of the World. And it's about Manhattan from 1600 to the present day. And man, it hasn't changed much at all. In a lot of ways, it's been a difficult place to live over the past two years. You know, I certainly have wondered what has kept me here and, and certainly paying New York City rents, even though I haven't been able to leave much and I haven't been able to partake in all of the things that you discussed. It's been, it's been weird. This, this, uh, it hasn't been that bad for me personally. You know, I, I'm not a party goer. I, I, I don't go out to stadiums to watch people throw a ball around. You know, I, I, I'm, I like to stay at home and, and, and work. I, I'm creating images or creating music or whatever else I'm up to, you know. Yeah, this is a great city. I'm glad I'm here. You used to be a party goer. Correct. Was that a gradual transition for you? Um, I think as one gets older, you know, uh, the transitions become become more comfortable, you know. And and my life right now, I, I'm a lucky lucky uh, man to be able to say that my, my life is very comfortable. You know, I I, I certainly have uh, enough enough, you know, money and things that that I could ever have wished for. And I'm, I, I just wake up in the morning and get on with my life. And that, that, that's all I've been, I've been an incredibly, I've been doing that since I was 18 years old. I mean, how lucky is that to be able to, to define what you're doing for your life? Because life is really choices, isn't it? It's lucky. It's also a very strange thing. And this is something that strikes me a lot as I talk to musicians who started at a fairly early age, you know, you in your early teens, perhaps even before that. But um, it is a very strange thing to essentially do the same thing that you've been doing since you were 12 years old. Yeah. And, 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 I'm, and I'm incredibly grateful. I often go back to Manchester, which is the, 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 the area where I'm basically from in the north of England. And I, and I see my friends who still don't like their life, still resent their boss, still trying to figure out, you know, why, and I, and I keep coming up with this question, why me? What happened to me that, that I escaped all that, you know? And it was, mu it was music. 
when I first started, uh, you know, singing with Alan Clark when I was six years old in the school choir, you know, I knew ma that, that music was magic. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'm just uh, almost completing an album that I'm making with my friend Alan Clark. He's been my friend for 74 years. I've known him since I was six years old, you know, and uh, he's been singing incredibly well and i'm very i'm very grateful to be a musician the question of why me is not always the healthiest one to ask how you get into a lot of a lot of scenarios and you tend to second guess things but yeah. um you know you, you said it was music but obviously a lot of people pursue music and not everyone makes it makes it yeah and that's that's the part of being lucky you are or at least haven't traditionally been somebody who seeks things out. It sounds like you feel, and I don't know if it's karmic or cosmic, but that things tend to happen to you. Yes. My life happens to me. I, I, I didn't plan this life. I just made choices along the way that made my heart and my brain feel good. You know, do I, do I go into the mill or down the mine, which my father did and my grandfather and his father? Or do you seek what you really love, which was music and making music, and, and make that choice? And those are the choices you make in your life that bring you on your path and bring you to being 80 years old, you know, and talking to you. Do you feel that there, it's been a series of, of lucky moments? Absolutely. Absolutely. Lucky moments. I, I wake up in the morning and, and uh, you know, I get on with my day and, I, and I, I challenge the day to show me something fantastic. Show me something. I've got my camera with me. Come on. Come on, world. To show me something. And invariably, it does. So there is a way in which you do have to look for it, right? Or at least you have to be open for it. Yes, that's the point. You look for it, maybe. Be open for it, absolutely. I am really curious what role photography has played because it is something that predates your music making. And and you know how has that colored your interactions with the world? When my father taught me the magic of photography when I was ten years old, it changed my life. It was a very simple dark room. He would take a blanket off my bed and put it up against the window to keep the light out. Then he would put this, you know, this color, this white piece of paper into a basically colorless liquid and wait, wait, wait. And then all of a sudden, this image came into view from nowhere. And that magical moment has stayed with me all my life. Do you feel that the simple act of looking at something through a viewfinder or at the very least looking at the world through the eyes of a photographer changes the way that you interact with your surroundings? Yeah, it, it, it does. I, I, I try and keep open 360 degrees everywhere I go. There's magic in the air everywhere. There's beauty on the street floor, on the ground, you know, incredible pieces of, of graffiti and stuff. This city is incredible for a photographer. It really, it really truly is. It seems to me that cover of the first Crosby, Stills, and Nash record is kind of a manifestation of that, of finding beauty in a strange place. 
and, and having it turned upside down. Yeah, you know the story of that cover. You know, we had not decided on, on what we would call ourselves, even though it was going to be some combination of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And the only way that me and David felt that it flowed off the tongue naturally was Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Stills, Nash, and Crosby? No. Stills, Crosby, and Nash? No. Doesn't work. Stills probably would have preferred the last two. Yes, he, he wanted it to be Stills and then Crosby, Nash hyphenated. But, uh, you know, once again, uh, we were a democratic bunch, even though there were only three of us, and, and, and David and I's decision uh, outweighed Stephen's decision. And we went with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We had taken the picture on that couch in, that, in front of that old house. Uh, we were sitting in the wrong order. We decided to go back the next day and reshoot it in the correct order that we had decided to call ourselves. And, of course, the house was gone. It had been bulldozed into the back of the lot, just a pile of lumber. It is fascinating to hear people talk about that cover with you because I don't think that people understand just by looking at the record that it was sort of a dilapidated house and that it was just a a couch that was on the street. I mean, it's it's fascinating. And I, I think you can probably really appreciate this as not only a photographer, I know that you started a photography company as well. So you've got some interesting insight here, but the ways in which we kind of, we can recontextualize art. Yes. Yes. And, and I like to do that. And, and that was a place that we saw just on a walk. Uh, Henry Diltz was, was in the studio. We, we had kept almost everybody out of the studio to just let us get on with what we could do best and henry was there one day and we reached we said hey you know what the truth is we're almost done with this record we we need a cover let's go let's go walking so we told bill halverson our, our engineer to figure out something to do for an hour while we went for a walk and immediately we saw that house and it kind of fit the music you know, the music was down home, blue jean, hippie, kind of long haired, you know, casual kind of thing. And this house fit the music perfectly. And that's why we did it. It was such an interesting period for you as well. And, and reading your book, speaking of recontextualizing, I'm always fascinated with where authors, particularly people writing memoirs, choose to begin and end things. And you made a very conscious decision. I think you describe it as an impasse in the book, obviously a very transitional part of your life, um, both musically and in terms of relationships. But the initial difficulties at the time with the Hollies transitioning into Crosby, Stills and Nash. And I'm curious why, why that's the moment that you chose to open things up. Because it was an incredibly transitional choice that I made. People thought I was crazy. What, you're leaving the Hollies? All those hits, all those girls, all that money, you're just leaving them. But they hadn't heard me and David and Stephen sing, and I had. And that was, that was my choice. I realized once I had heard what me and David and Stephen did with our three voices, making them into one voice, we created a, a, a harmonic structure that we had never heard before. Obviously, the Hollies and the Birds and the Springfield were pretty good harmony bands, but this was completely different. Once I had heard that sound, 
my my soul said, you want this. Hmm. And I realized I would have to make a choice. I would have to go back to England, leave the Hollies, leave my equipment, leave my friends, leave my family, and go to a, a different country on a whim. But that whim was incredibly strong to me. And that was the sound of me and David and Stephen singing. That really is one of those those quintessential moments for you. And that does sound like a really good example of this idea of being open and letting things take shape. Yes. Was there was there any self-doubt on your part? You were leaving something very comfortable. Oh, I, I, what would you do as a musician if you heard that sound? It's difficult. You know, people who have made transitions, you know, new jobs, move cities. Um, even if something feels good, I think we've all been, I've certainly been in moments where I thought something was going to work out and made that jump and regretted it. I didn't, I've, I've never regretted any of my choices. I mean, how could I regret any of them? Here I am. I'm, I'm in this beautiful apartment in, 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 um, in, in the East Village in New York, I have, I have my own studio, which I'm in right now. You know, my apartment is right next door. Uh, what an incredible life I live. And, and, and once again, I'm just incredibly gratif- gratified. The, the, I, the choices I made seemed to have been the correct choices for me. Having seen your career from the outside, I would say that's fair. And I do often liken the end of bands to the end of relationships. Indeed. Yeah. There's power in knowing when when's the right time to to walk away, you know, knowing yes. that, that something had its moment. That's where I'm at right now. And that's that's why, you know, people say, Well, you know, are you ever gonna talk to Crosby again? Or is CSN gonna record or CSN why are they gonna record? No, it's all it's all over. We we did what we did, and look what we did for the last fifty years. We have made some really incredibly beautiful music, and we've had, been through some bad times, of course. But hey, look what we did in fifty years. I heard you describe your divorce as well as being amicable too. I mean, it sounds like it was not sort of dissimilar from that decision. No, it wasn't. Um, I gave, I gave my ex-wife everything that she wanted. I had no interest in being uh, awful or cruel or any of that. Wh- whatever Susan wanted, she got. Gratitude something that you feel that you've had to work for, work towards in your life. I know, obviously, there are a lot of other people who have, you know, achieved fame and, and money playing music, but not all of them seem to be particularly grateful. I, I've always been grateful. You've got to understand, you know, England, we're, we're in two world wars within 75 years of each other from the same enemy, you know. And when you've made it through World War One and you've made it through World War Two, English people, give me a real problem. Don't tell me that your, your, your tea is not hard enough. You know, give me a real problem. Let's deal with this. And and once you have that kind of attitude, those th- that attitude colors your choices. And once again, I, I, I do believe I've made the right choices in my life. You know, but it, it it is one of those things, though. You know, describing it in hindsight, I'm really on describing like 
that sound that you were able to create, would you walk away from that? I mean, ultimately, time and relationships have transpired and have made it necessary to to walk away. And I, I, yes. I'm guessing that even knowing that the time is right to end something, it's still it still can be a difficult and painful process. Yes. And for me particularly, this last, uh, you know, this last few years have been very difficult for me emotionally. You know, I, I divorced my wife. I divorced David. I divorced me and David and Stephen. I divorced me and David and Stephen and Neil all in the same half year. It was a difficult time for me. But I trusted in my life I trusted my choices, and I'm very comfortable with where I am right now. How do you deal with that process? How do you go on and and you know and and live your life and and be open to new things? I think you have to keep your heart open, and you have to remain curious. There's a just a quick story. When I brought out Wild Tales, which was my autobiography, I did a book tour. I was doing a book tour in Manchester, right where I come from, basically. This kid comes up to me, you know, and, 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 and I'm signing books. And what's your name? Yes, signing. And I write about it. This kid comes up to me and he hands me an 8 by 10 manila envelope. And he says, uh, you, you, you need this. I said, what is it? He said, open it up when you get back to the hotel. So I said, okay. And I, I, I took the envelope and I got, did the thing. And, you know, I go back to the hotel and I open it up. And inside is my school report from when I was 11 years old. And one of the things that one of my teachers said is, this boy wants to know everything. And I don't think I've changed since I was 11 years old. I know that you had said in the book that you weren't a particularly good student. No, no, I, no, not at all. I, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I loved my school friends, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't happy at school, you know, I, 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 I thought that life was teaching me much more and in a better way than, 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 you know, school did. Certainly there's a distinction there that we get to and, and a difference between mandatory learning and learning things yourself and, and that sort of openness. And it's easier to re-engage with the world when you can do so on your own terms. Yes, very much so. And once again, that's part of why I've been so lucky all my life. Would you describe yourself as, as being introverted? I, I, I think I, I go between both worlds. You know, I'm, in, I, I'm a very private man. At the same time, I love to get in front of thousands of people and start singing. You know, It is a fascinating thing that I've discovered about myself and I've discovered about myself through talking to a lot of artists that to me, introversion and extroversion have always been very binary ideas, but I can, can talk to you. I can go out on stage. and But if I go to a party, for example, where I don't know anybody, I, I completely shut down. Shut down. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Same with me. Can it be hard to reconcile those two sides of yourself? It only becomes difficult because you have to add the uh, the fact that people know what, what I look like. You know, they may not know what you look like, you know, but because I've been, you know, a popular musician for so many years, people know what I look like, you know. So you have to add that into the equation of, you know, how you deal with people. I've always treated uh, people the same way that the Everly Brothers treated me when I met them in 1962. 
they just talked to me as a person. And it was amazing to, to, to be talking to the Everly Brothers, just me and Don and Phil and Alan Clark on the steps of the Midland Hotel. They treated me like a person. And it was important to me to be able to make sure that everybody I met from that moment on felt good about meeting me and not thought I was an asshole or thought I was a dick, you know, that thought I was a decent person that, that, that was interested in them as, as much as they were interested in me. It becomes so much more difficult to do that when everybody wants to meet you. So you just have to add that factor in. Did that sort of binary, did that, how did that impact you when you made that decision to move to California and were spending time in Little Canyon? You know, it sounds like certainly part of the, that tail end of the 60s, people were very open and very everywhere. You know, it, it, it was probably difficult to try to, to have to engage people all the time on that level. No, no, we were musicians with music. That's what we did. We would, I mean, the three of us would take a couple of guitars over to our friend's house and fucking blow them away. When you hear me and David and Steven sing Sweet Judy Blue Eyes in front of your face and do it brilliantly, we were musicians and we had the music and we knew it. And therefore we were smiling and, sh and sharing and going to people's houses and finding out what Jackson did and what Joni did and open up. It was a fabulous time in Laurel Canyon. I, I must confess, it was full of sunshine and beautiful music and beautiful women. So you've got a perhaps a tool in your arsenal that maybe not everybody who is dealing with sort of similar issues has and that you've got this, this guitar and this voice and that, that, op that not only opens doors potentially, but it, it lets you it lets you engage with people on your own terms. Indeed. And I've, I've always done that. Getting back to your relationship with um, David specifically, I, I know the two of you spent a lot of time together. The th 3,000-mile sea voyage with, between the two of you. I, I often say to bands, you know, the best way to really, in relationships, the best way to sort of test a relationship is to move in with somebody. And I think the best way to know whether or not it's going to work out as a band is to, to drive around in a van with them, to be in sort of confined spaces. It Before David and Stephen and I hit, um, I'd already been in a, in a fabulous hit band. I'd already, been, I'd, be, I'd already been in the Hollies for six years. I already knew what fans were and, and, and screaming girls and not being able to hear yourself play because of the screams. I, I'd already been through all that. So it, that, that didn't impress me. You know, maybe it impressed David and Stephen a little more because they, they weren't quite that used to it for that long. But I'd been in a hit band for six years before I ever joined David and Stephen. I guess I meant specifically on an interpersonal relationship, right? Just because you've been able to be in a band with a certain group of people doesn't necessarily mean that personalities are, are, are going to, to mesh well together. And a good way to test that perhaps is to go on a 3,000 mile sea voyage with a guy. Yeah, and that was, that was my first sea voyage. What was that experience like? It was an experience of letting go. I had no control over my life. David, the captain of the ship, had control over my life for nine weeks. And so it was a process of opening up and letting go. I had to trust him that he knew where he was going. I had to trust him that he knew what to do in a storm. 
I had to trust him to know when to throw the anchor out so that we were safe. I had to let go completely. And I did. And David came through with bells on. Was letting go in that way, was that a difficult thing to do? No. Once I had set foot on that boat, and once that boat left the dock, I was on the trip, whatever it did, wherever it went, whatever it took. Clearly, the two of you were were very close. You know, uh, you know, per- perhaps I, I certainly for a certain period of there, the the closest relationship in the bands is that. Is there a way in which being that close with somebody means that the potential fallout is that much greater? Yes. It was terribly disappointing, probably for both of us. I mean, you've got to understand, I, I, had, I had talked to David almost every day for 45 years. I haven't spoken to David in, in, in years now. And of course, it's sad. And of course, it makes, me, uh, it makes me wonder whether I made the right choice, although I, I'm, I'm com- completely convinced I did. Whatever it was that David and I, whatever connection, it, 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 it got severed. You know, I, 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 I speak metaphorically about this golden thread that connects musicians on a very deep level, particularly in, 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 in a band like we had, you know. Um, and I, I, you know, we broke that thread that connects us and, and you can't tie it back together because there's always like a lump there that, where the two ends don't quite fit. You know, you just can't put it back together. And, and that's the way it is. And, and God bless him. I know that he's a great singer. I know he's a great musician. And uh, I wish him all the best in the world. Being in a friendship with someone for a long time, whether, whether these things compound over time, obviously you have a deep understanding with somebody and obviously you've been through a lot. I suspect there were probably moments where, where you got pretty close, but you know, knowing somebody for so long, does it make it easier or harder to forgive a person for the transgressions? I think it becomes a little easier as I get older. You know, the things, you know, I can hardly even remember the shit we argued about. You know, it's just pointless trying to go back there. It, it, I, all I do is, is be grateful that, that, that I knew David and grateful for the music that we made and the friendship we had. And uh, it seems to be over. And so let's just get on with life. You don't strike me as a particularly nostalgic person. No, I, I'm much more interested in the song I'm writing now. I'm about to go into the studio when, as soon as we finish uh, talking and, um, and start working on, on my new solo record and finishing up the record I'm making with Alan Clark. There is a little irony there, though, in life of you know getting to a certain level where you you want to continue working on new things, but people, you know, somebody asks you to write a book, or in this case, somebody asks you to put out this live record uh, that's a collection of your solo works. I know that that a, a few years back you put out a, kind of a greatest hits that you know featured some of their early demos. Is it even though you're not a nostalgic person, and even though you're looking forward, is there something? satisfying in the process of going back and re-examining? Yeah, because sometimes, you know, you forget how great something was. And, you, you, you know, the, the perfect example is when I was putting together the, uh, the, the uh, stadium tour, the 1974 stadium tour that we did. I was going through all the little bits and stuff and stuff that we'd, that we'd forgotten about. And then I found this, um, 
I found this little one and a half minute thing that Neil Young had written about about Ro- Rosemary, you know, the uh, Nixon secretary, Rosemary Woods, right? Um, and he 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 wrote this like thirty, you know, a minute and a half song to her that, that of course was just something that he wanted to express his own feelings about, but but was never a real song or a real record that we were going to do. But when I heard it, I thought, wow, fantastic. Neil, I want to use this. Okay with you? Yeah, sure. You're fine. And we did it. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not really nostalgic. Um, and I do understand that people want to hear our house and teacher children in Chicago and military madness and immigration. I know all that. And I try and sing them on tour with the same passion I had when I wrote them because I think my audience deserve the best version of that song that night. I think a, a difficult line that, that a lot of artists walk when it comes to doing political work, or at least contemporary work, is trying, not, is tr- is trying to make it relevant to the moment without perhaps getting stuck in right. time. Right. I, I don't want to get stuck in time. I want to move the time with me. I've got a lot of music to choose from, I must tell you, Brian. It's, it's, I just finished a 22-day tour, and uh, one of the things that I found very interesting is that uh, a lot of people had saved their ticket. See, two years ago, I was in the middle of a sold-out tour of 25 shows, and I had to stop after the first five because of COVID. So then I, uh, you know, two years go by, and I pick up the tour again, and a lot of people had saved their tickets. And I told them, I said, you know, you know what that means to me? Hope. That you think, okay, well, look, this show's been canceled. I'm hoping it's going to come back. I'm hoping after COVID and after Trump that we're going to get back to it and I'm going to save my ticket and God bless them. And that's hope to me. And I love that. And I told him on the tour too. And I also started my tour very differently this time because of what's going on in, with, between Russia and Ukraine. You know, I, I started my shows with Find the Cost of Freedom, followed by Military Madness, talking about Putin and talking about uh, Zelensky. How mindful are you of this idea of trying to write something that both deals with, in a lot of cases, contemporary politics, you know, Military Madness, you had mentioned, and, and it opens this new live record, but but making sure that it is something that can have a life beyond this current moment. Yep. I, I, you know, I've got a couple of songs on this new record that, that speak, you know, directly to, to Trump and Republicans. Uh, and, you know, this, this insane destruction of the truth that I see happening constantly. I don't quite understand it. I know that Republicans, they must have a brain between all of them. Uh, but I don't quite understand what, what they're doing. I, I don't understand why they don't understand that, you know, democracy is dying and that we need to, to, to cling on to the last vestiges of democracy and, and bring it back to life and support it. Whereas the Republicans seem to feel that uh, Trump is the right guy and that the, all his ideas are the way the country should be run. And I'm just totally against it, of course. But I am writing about it. Because I, I can't not. Culturally, you were really on the front lines, you know, through Nixon. You know, Kent State, as as we mentioned before, having lived through that, does this current moment feel different? Does it feel worse? 
I didn't think it could feel worse than Watergate and what was going on culturally there. I didn't think it could be worse. Today, it's far worse than that. What is happening, I seem to feel that I'm witnessing the end of the American empire. There have been many empires from the Scythians and the Greeks and the, you know, Alexander the Great and the Russian empire and the British empire and blah, blah, blah. They've all failed, every single one of them. I think I'm watching the American empire fail. It has to be difficult, it's just in terms of the scope of the moment to attempt to translate that into song. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's difficult, but I, I've done it, uh, yeah, I've done it on two particular songs on, on this album, one of them called Golden Idol and the other called Stars and Stripes. So l listen out for it. Is it an act of just focusing in a little bit more and, and finding something to build out on? Yep, you have to find the very essence of what it is you're trying to say. There are a lot of stories, with you in particular, of these songs that that came really quickly. You know, I know that that a lot of your your biggest songs, you know, were written in an hour and in one specific case in in twenty minutes. Do you find that generally that the quality of the song is better if it comes more quickly? I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. You know, it took me you know less than an hour to write just a song before I go, right. Took me four years to write Cathedral. I had to make sure that every single word was right because when you're playing around with someone's religion, you have to be very careful. It's very, very important to many, many people, and I understand that. But I also understand that there are more people have been killed in the in, in the last you know three or four thousand years in the name of religion than have done in world wars. You know so. I had to be very careful, and, and that's why it took me a long time to actually hone and edit and finalize Cathedral. So I've been through a 20-minute song and a four-year song. I wonder if we set unrealistic expectations for musicians and artists when we talk about the muse and, and inspiration, because when it doesn't come, it can be extremely frustrating. It can, except that I'm lucky enough to be, to, to, uh, be dealing in, in my life if I'm not writing songs or if I feel I have a blank moment, I'll go and take photographs or I'll start printing stuff or I'll start with my collection of, of documents that I have that's brilliant. I'll go back and pound through any... I mean, right now, my friend Joel Bernstein, who has been one of my best friends for many, many years since I met him when I was 16, when he was 16 years old, he's now doing putting together CSNY 1969 mainly from the Fillmore East. So there's always something to do. So I, I don't get writer's block and I don't get photographer's block because I can move between genre. Does songwriting get any easier? No, it doesn't get easier. It, it, it gets more complicated in a way because I've always prided myself on writing an incredibly simple song. I don't want to get to the fourth verse before you know what the fuck I'm talking about. I want to get you immediately with the first line of the song. I want to draw you into the journey that I'm preparing for you. I know that you're a big believer of the idea that, that a good song is something that you should be able to play regardless of instrument. Exactly. You should be able to just sing it. As, as we said, you've written a lot of political pieces in your time, but have you seen music affect change? 
Absolutely. More so in the earlier days. In the earlier days, you know, you could talk about you could talk about Vietnam, you could talk about, you know, women's rights, you could talk about a lot of stuff. But the media learned you can't show all these people, you know, flag flag draped coffins of, of people from Afghanistan because they'll start to get upset. You can't I mean, you never saw anything about Grenada. You never saw anything about Panama. You didn't see any, they learned. Don't piss off the people because they will start to ask questions and that's what you don't want. And, that's, and they learned. And so it's more difficult to get protest songs on the radio nowadays or on the television because the people that control it all don't want the boat to be rocked. Is there anything that you see now, you know, looking out in the world, whether it's, you know, music or cultural or even political that gives you hope? Yes, of course. There's some fantastic things happening here. We're trying to put somebody else on the moon. We're trying to put somebody on fucking Mars. There's millions of things that humanity is doing that are fantastically wonderful. And at the same time, people are fucking dying as we're speaking in Ukraine. They're being fucking destroyed by one man's idea. Thousands and thousands of people dying for one man's idea. Terrible. Terrible. 